Hi, I'm Amir Purandare. And I'm Marissa Malawanig. And this is Here at Haas, a student-run podcast connecting you to all Haasis and faculty that have changed our lives. Hello, everyone. Today on the podcast, we have Zahan Wood. Zahan is a full-time MBA student at the Haas School of Business. He has extensive experience as an investor and operator in private markets across private debt, private equity, and special situations in multiple sectors. Zan is a CFA holder, a finance fellow in private equity and investment management at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, co-president of the Private Equity Club and the European Business Club, co-BP of Search Funds, and a general partner in Courtyard Ventures Fund 2. Very, very happy to have you here, Zan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Samir. Thanks, Marissa. Looking forward to being on it. Zan, you were born and brought up in the UK. You did your schooling and undergrad there. Then you moved to first Southeast Asia, then North Asia, and then the US. So help us understand, like, how did that come about? What motivated you to move from UK to Asia and then to the US? Walk us through that journey. Yeah, so I was actually originally born in Singapore and have close family connections to Asia. I've had a brother who lives down in Australia and a brother who, who previously lived in Vietnam. So essentially what happened is I got an internship at a private credit firm in Hong Kong. And from there, someone who was working at that firm also owned a private equity firm. He asked me if I wanted to join them. So that took me down to Vietnam. And I ended up spending nearly six years there and went from analyst to partner. And so it was a pretty amazing experience spending a lot of time in Southeast Asia. So it's kind of serendipity that I ended up being there for so long, but kind of linked into what I really enjoyed. Uh, and so that's, that's how it came about. So you have an MA in history, but you got a CFA. What prompted that? Were you always interested in finance or did that come about as a chance encounter? Uh-huh. Yeah, so I think it probably started with entrepreneurship and I've always been interested in entrepreneurship. When I was at school, I was selling Pokemon cards. I'm not sure if they have those anymore. And that kind of built on to when I got to university. Uh, I managed to build an events business, which ended up about 100,000 attendees over different events from boxing to club events, uh, including hosting artists such as Kygo, you know, he's turned into quite a big artist now. And so from there, I took those profits and put them back into the stock market. And even when I was younger... I remember betting with one of my family members about the appreciation of the Remimbi. So I had a feeling that the Remimbi would appreciate. I think I was right on that one, but I'm not sure if I ever got paid back. But then if I kind of look that back to, you know, history at university, in the UK, it's not as fixed your university degree versus maybe some other countries. So history was just uh, because I was interested in it effectively. And that's kind of how the university degrees work. A lot of friends who did geography, politics, and who ended up in finance in the UK. But then moving on to my career in Asia, I kind of saw the CFA as a good complement to the investing side. So I think I always knew that I wanted to be in investing or directly touching and influencing businesses. But then I took the CFA as a way to kind of complement it. And it was a very, very hard exam, much harder than the kind of GMAT or the GRE, but very worthwhile. I think about it as about 20 to 30 percent of it has been useful, which I think is a good takeaway from education, actual applications. Did you get your CFA before you moved to Southeast Asia or did the CFA help getting that job in Southeast Asia? No, the CFA was kind of just like a self-directed study while in Southeast Asia. So I went out to Asia without much of a understanding of finance or investing or anything. And luckily the kind of mentor who took me out of Hong Kong and put me down to Vietnam, he put a lot of trust in me and gave me a lot of 
early responsibilities. So I was able to kind of really learn by doing, and then I just saw the CFA as a way to complement that experience. So it sounds like you had a really promising career out in Asia and you've done multiple things. So what motivated you to pursue an MBA on top of the career you already had? And why did you choose Haas? Yeah, I think the first thing on the MBA was for the last couple of years in Hong Kong, it's been fairly locked in. So for my time in Asia, I did two years in Vietnam, two years in Bangkok, and then two years in Hong Kong. And at the time in Hong Kong, you were locked in, you weren't able to travel. And I think what I really realized was that I kind of loved enabling entrepreneurs. And a lot of our investments were kind of across Asia and in different places. So I, I, it was at that time that I kind of thought, you know, maybe an MBA is interesting. It was, it was unclear when Hong Kong would open up. And then in terms of why has, just look at kind of developments of what's happening in this area of the world, in this area of America, you've got, you know, pretty close to us now, you've got like nuclear fusion, where they've managed to get net energy positive. I think that kind of highlights that there's just a huge amount of stuff happening in the Bay Area. You can just see it's just like a kind of hotbed of innovation. Um, and so that's kind of why Haas really appealed to me to kind of test my entrepreneurial experience and give me a way to kind of look at doing things in America. So I think Haas has been a great experience so far. And you can kind of tell just walking around the Berkeley campus, it's just a huge amount of entrepreneurship and general people trying to do different things. Haas is also known for our defining leadership principles. What leadership principles speak to you as an entrepreneur in this ecosystem? Yeah, for me, it's kind of questioning the status quo is one which speaks to me. And I think that's just the idea of always being curious, asking questions and continually like checking, like, you know, just because someone says something does not mean it is right. And I think that's a great defining leadership principle. Um, and also I think the student always is very interesting to me. I'm a big fan of reading and consuming information. So always very curious to keep on learning as much as possible. That's great. You are also a finance fellow in private equity and investment management. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that entails and what's the process to get nominated? Who makes the selection decisions? What that entails in general? Yeah, that is something which you apply for with a couple of essays once you arrive at Haas. And I do not know who actually decides that, but I think it's interesting for the fact, obviously, you do get a little bit of money for it, but I've been partnered with a mentor I called Alan Holt, who's a senior partner at Carlyle, which is one of the largest private equity, private credit alternative asset managers in the world. Uh, so I've had a few calls with him and great to get a kind of mentor. And he's a Haas MBA, so he's really willing to push along and give good advice. So that I think is where it's really valuable in terms of that fellowship. So I would encourage anyone to apply for that when you get to Haas. So just a little bit more about that fellowship. Do you need prior finance experience? No, I, I think no, no prior experience needed. And I think a couple of the winners of that fellowship in the investment banking one, I think one of them I know does not really have finance experience, but I think he was able to show how much he wanted to get into investment banking. And I think obviously came across in his application. So I think it's a great way for people who want to focus on a finance career or, and mainly gain the mentorship. I think the mentorship is extremely valuable for anyone. And I think school is very good in giving you great opportunities and great people who can be potential mentors. I think that can really further people's careers. So one of your big undertakings at Haas is Courtyard Ventures, the second fund. You are a general partner in Courtyard Ventures Fund too. For people who don't know, can you just tell us a little bit more about what the fund is, what's the mandate of the fund, and why 
Berkeley students should Western Courtyard? Yeah, so I think to step back, the way I got involved in Courtyard, prior to coming to Haas, I read a report by a Stanford professor on the number of unicorns created by uh, Haas MBAs. And I think we're number three uh, versus Stanford and Harvard. And I read that and I kind of saw that's an amazing, amazing stat. I think we've got like 1.4 in a thousand versus Harvard's about like 1.6 in a thousand. And I thought, you know, of a thousand students, like 10 to 15% of them are going to start a business. So that's pretty low odds when you've got 1.4 companies effectively in like 100, 150 students creates a unicorn. So at that point, I kind of formulated a small plan and emailed uh, one of the professors at Haas. Um, well, this is pretty interesting. Is anyone doing it? And then he put me in touch uh, with the general partners and founders of Courtyard Fund One, a guy called Kevin Chang, who has done a great deal for the school and the Berkeley ecosystem. And effectively, the idea of Courtyard is a fund run by MBAs and Berkeley students to invest into startups from Berkeley. The genesis of that is students are very close to companies. We're in the ecosystem. We're able to meet with people and also Berkeley itself, not just MBAs, like on a kind of undergraduate level, PhD level. There's amazing companies coming out of Berkeley. You've got companies like Databricks, Mammoth Bioscience recently, and then further back, you've just got continually uh, amazing companies coming out of that. And, you know, from there... It was a group of us came together, uh, three first year MBAs, myself, Bruno, Julie, and Elias. And we kind of created the kind of four general partners. We've kind of come together looking to raise the fund too. And it's not just the four of us as general partners. We have a group of 20 plus students, venture partners who are helping I and mean, giving significant time with no kind of financial reward really um, to source companies, help with the due diligence and help with everything. I think it's something that Berkeley needs where, you know, I think Berkeley as a public school is relatively siloed. The budget of Berkeley per student is like $65,000 a year. And like Harvard is like $235,000 a year. And Stanford is $440,000 a year. There's just not the money to kind of get these different silos of the ecosystem. So I think us as students within this ecosystem can really play a role to kind of create the lubricant to really help create and push startups forward. I think that is really what I believe and the other general partners believe that Fund 2 can do. And even though Courtyard Fund 2, the idea is a lot of other schools have done this as well, where like kind of year has its own fund um, and then it just keeps on going year after year. And it's amazing the Fund 1, you know, all the efforts they've done puts us in a great position because they've had time mapping out the ecosystem They've managed to create a great name for themselves and they're kind of old standard in terms of their relationships with founders. Uh, and so we're, I think we're in a great position to really create value, both the ecosystem. And I guess our mandate is to invest in any company which has a founder who has come out of Berkeley. I think this is super interesting and a great initiative. I want to learn a little bit more about how you set up the fund and did you kind of select the other other three partners and how did that genesis of the idea come about? Yeah, so effectively it was a kind of application process. I think Kevin, as I mentioned, one of the, the founders of Fund One, you know, put together an application process where everyone, you know, submit an investment memo on a company from the portfolio, the Fund One investment. And yeah, from there, the kind of four general partners were chosen. But 
Myself, uh, Bruno and Elias, we're all kind of first year MBAs, so we all know each other pretty well already. Uh, and obviously I've got to know Julie very well through as well, who, who's an EW. You know, in terms of the thinking around why it is first year MBAs, so it's just because of the, A, the time commitment, and B, the idea is to invest the fund to over the two years of the MBA. So it gives us time to invest the capital and find the companies. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the other's fund details are? What's the term period and what's the structure of the fund in terms of carry and everything? Is that something you can talk about? Yeah, the idea is it's a 10-year fund uh, with a two-year investment period and then kind of 10-year where you're harvesting the investments. Uh, and this will be 20% carry and 0% management fees. And then of that carry, uh, 20% will be donated back to the school. Uh, and, you know, that we have enough carry that... We can create a Haas scholarship, which would help fund someone. If you look at the number of students now from Haas going to venture capital, it's, it's increased exponentially. So I think it's great that Berkeley is diversifying into new areas. Dan, so what's your view on the Berkeley startup ecosystem in general, not just from the investment side? How does it work? What do you think we do really well here? Can you elaborate on the total support for all startups? Yeah, so I think there was some pretty interesting data around uh, the amount of startups from different universities. And Berkeley, you know, on an undergraduate level, ranks number two, us as um, Stanford, and we rank like number five uh, on, on a graduate level. This is just in the number of companies. So I think we're doing a great job of starting companies. And I think the students here are extremely entrepreneurial. The alumni are extremely entrepreneurial. And everyone's out there trying to build next uh, greatest businesses in the world. And I think, you know, where we're lacking is amount of capital raised. I think we've raised on a total basis about 93 billion, while Stanford is more like 240 billion. What I feel is that, and I guess one of the theses of Courtyard is that there's not enough kind of capital looking for uh, companies here. And I guess that creates companies from Berkeley, which are kind of leaner and like with less access to capital, you become a better kind of steward of that capital, which I think in the times like this is a great time because at the moment it's a lot harder to raise funds. And so founders who are able to shepherd and look after the capital as much as possible are well positioned, uh, you know, in the kind of tough times. But I think it is a great, great time to be investing into businesses. I think if you look at the best venture capital returns of all time, they come out of um, economic downturns. And that's primarily for two reasons. One is um, you, the valuations are just lower. Companies last year which were trading at like a 10 times revenue might be trading at like a three times revenue, two times revenue. So just massive differences uh, in valuations. And so founders are a little bit more realistic. And, you know, the reality is a lot of people have been fired um, from like amazing Silicon Valley companies. And obviously that is a really tough time for anyone who's been affected by that. But what that really means is that access to amazing talent is a lot easier to get. You know, it's because people can't get, you know, those great jobs at Google, Facebook, and that's not because they can't get because it it's harder to get. For, for startups, they can now attract that talent, which really helps drive uh, amazing companies. And I think, yeah, if you look at what companies have come out of downturns before, uh, it, it's pretty impressive. You know, you can go all the way back to Microsoft effectively came out of a downturn. Uh, and then more recently, you've got like Airbnb, um, Uber, kind of which came out of the 2000 and 2008 crash. So, you know, that's pretty exciting. And I think if you look at the companies from the Berkeley ecosystem, which came out around then, uh, it's companies such as Cloudera, which had a Berkeley co-founder, Tube Mogul, you know, 
that's why it's exciting because you've got this um, reset in valuations as well as potential from companies to find founders and really accelerate their growth. Yeah, I think, and that combined with the ecosystem in general here. I think, you know, in terms of what Berkeley's doing right, you know, what it is definitely doing right is creating that entrepreneurial spirit. Berkeley's just a world leader in so many things. The more kind of connectivity, the better. And the more that network can be improved, the better for everyone. To expand on that last point, there are a lot of support resources available and other you know, investment funds for startups in the area, such as Skydeck or Dorm Room Fund. So why Courtyard? What gap is Courtyard filling? Yeah, so I think, I guess, firstly, you know, they're mainly uh, institutional capital. So, you know, that will be pension funds and insurance funds. And so like, I guess what we are trying to fill is, you know, that ability to connect to people who might care and have a difference. You know, people involved as students, people involved are really close to companies uh, versus even that one step removed creates slight friction. Um, so I think that is where Courtyard is really trying to uh, create value for founders. I guess, you know, an example of this is um, a recent investment fund one did, which I was helping out on, uh, was a, it's like a SaaS billing company, which came out of Y Combinator. Uh, and it's kind of database billing for smaller SaaS companies. And that, you know, while we were doing the due diligence, I was able to kind of find a full-time MBA who had spent a lot of time uh, in pricing. And he was able to kind of, you know, quickly do due diligence on the company. And then post that, you know, post an investment into that company, he was able to go and spend time with them, help them and provide value. So obviously people like Skydeck are doing an amazing job, creating amazing companies. But I think we kind of complement that in the fact that, you know, right, we're right next to them. They know, you know, they've been students themselves in Berkeley. They understand Berkeley. So I think there's that, which obviously is pulling on the heartstrings. But then actually at the brain, we can provide value through our network of people spread all over Bay Area in amazing companies. And so I think if a founder of a company needs something, I'm sure someone in our network can either try and help them or at least point them in the direction of someone else who can help. So I think that's, you know, the real value add of that. At the same time, you know, we are looking to invest like 50 to 150,000. Uh, so it's relatively small investments compared to like a Skydeck, for example. So, you know, Fund One have invested alongside Skydeck. So it's not like anyone is fighting out there. It's more that everyone is trying to work together to improve the ecosystems. Talked a little bit about the situation with big tech companies and a lot of talent being available. There's also a lot going on geopolitically and even on the macroeconomic front with interest rates and the inflation data coming out. So, given this environment, what do you think is this a good time for people to be thinking about building their startups? What are the other factors that entrepreneurs or people who are building should look out for? I, I don't know. I think I always think it's a great time to try and start a startup, um, and definitely now. Because it's a bit of dislocation, and I think typically if there's a dislocation, it's a great time to be building something. So I think for people looking to build a startup, you know, what is your alternative? Uh, you go into a very tough job market, so that the alternative to build a startup is your risk reward in a startup is now maybe better than it was. Um, yeah, the valuations might not be as high as they were, but by the time you get to the level, you know, the market will likely pick up. So I think, yeah, I think it's a great time to be out there building something. We have seen this trend come up where first it was cloud computing, then AI ML. 
now we have like GPT and OpenAI coming up with a bunch of tools. So in your mind as an investor, what are the areas that you look out for where you think innovation might happen? Yeah, I think this obviously everyone's been pretty fascinated with this generative AI. And I think now I feel kind of coming out a little bit more just saying like, is this actually as good as people are saying? When you actually dig down into it, like are the results as good? I think it's very interesting is ways people are able to utilize, you know, proprietary data sets to train the AI. Because I think it's the size of that chat GPT, the actual algorithm is, is tiny, as in, in terms of actual size of like megabytes or uh, of the actual software, but it's more what you can train that data on. So, because obviously like with the AI, the more data you're feeding into it, the, uh, the better it's getting. So like companies which can get into a space where they're, where they're selling a product to companies, but then learning from that and, you know, keep on utilizing that to make the product better. And I think that will likely be in more of a modular way versus like one company coming in, dominating the space. I think AI seems to be a buzzword at the moment. Um, I think, you know, stuff like gaming, there's going to be some pretty interesting things. You know, Fund did an investment, which I helped out a little bit on in terms of like in-game advertising for uh, like Roblox. So I think that's quite interesting in terms of maximizing ways in which creators can have value from what they're creating. Um, so I think that's pretty amazing. I think there's a lot to go in the creative space. I think there's been a bit of a decoupling of this is so cheap to create content now versus what it cost before. We're sitting on a podcast which 20 years ago would have cost X hundred thousand to, to produce and now is produced for basically nothing. So I think ways in which kind of creator economy, I think is going to be is going to be interesting. So there's a lot to look forward to. And any other verticals that interest you? I know, for instance, crypto has seen a lot of booms and busts and this current bear market in crypto has a lot of people skeptical about it. But what's your take on crypto? And then you also mentioned energy and breakthroughs and fusion. So any other verticals that kind of are on top of your mind? Yeah, I've been fascinated following this FTX blow up and now seeing Binance is under quite a lot of stress. Uh, I still can't understand how Binance is like operating structure works. And I think it feels like the US government trying to take them down for some kind of money laundering thing. So if Binance goes down, how the crypto market would recover in the short term from that, I don't know, because I think Binance around 60% of the trading. I'm not 100% sure what would happen in the crypto market. I think what will come out of crypto will be pretty interesting. Again, it's that thing where so much money has gone into this space. A lot of interesting companies will come out of that. It's kind of like the dot-com boom where a huge amount of money went in, a lot of companies went bankrupt, but then amazing companies came out of it. And then I think the climate space, which is a bit of a extension to the energy fusion I mentioned earlier, where there's going to be a lot of things happening in the climate space. The reality is we're not on track for net zero, as in the amount of investment required to get there is just huge. And so I think there's a lot of companies coming in and doing really interesting stuff in this space. But, you know, it's also a different type of investment versus SaaS investment. So it's a lot more, in my opinion, a lot more kind of hard tech. Uh, I don't know how like the return profiles of that will look versus the return profiles of SaaS investments. But I think a huge amount of money is going in there and you're seeing some amazing breakthroughs and companies and business models coming through there. Uh, so I think that is an area which has got to happen. And I think it's got to happen in multiple ways. One is making sure that buildings emit less energy, making sure that obviously cars are electric, but then also ensuring that whole supply chain uh, reduces its kind of energy emissions, making things like 
clean steel, clean cement, and effectively just try to reduce emissions across the whole swathe of industry and everything else. So I think that when you're seeing the kind of flow of funds within the venture capital world, there's a massive amount going there, but it's a massive amount to do. I would recommend if anyone's interested in this and the kind of the size of the problem is reading a book from John Doerr around this and Speed and Scale is the name of the book. I think that the energy fusion thing I mentioned earlier, I think is really interesting. And effectively what that is, is for fusion to get what they've really been not able to do is get in more, get more energy out than went into it. And they've managed to do that this week, which is a huge breakthrough. But to turn that into a commercial operation is will take a long time. I think that's probably 20, 30 years when you get there and you can do it in a way that is sustainable, you've effectively got unlimited energy uh, for the world. So that's obviously positive in terms of the outlook of the world. But, you know, you're seeing just more and more um, outlandish black swan weather events. So I think this whole thing needs to change. And I think well, people are hopefully seeing that now and you're seeing this massive mobilization towards it. You mentioned being a student always and your love of reading. What's your favorite lesson you've learned recently from reading outside of class requirements? Yes, I guess this one, you know, I guess it's a plug for your guys' podcast, but I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts where Kurt Beyer, who is a faculty member at Haas, had the quote, it's a professional who loves change, who loves to innovate. And if sometimes they're investors, sometimes they're an employee, and sometimes they're a co-founder, it's all being entrepreneurial. And so I think that kind of resonates with what I've done throughout my career in terms of building a business and being an investor. That was a great quote to me. And I've not been taught by him yet, but I've heard he's an amazing professor and the amount of companies which have come out of his entrepreneurship class is pretty staggering as well. I love that. I love that encouragement that anyone can have an entrepreneurial mindset and be an entrepreneur. Well, congratulations on finishing your first semester. So what's been your favorite Haas experience? Yeah, I think one of the best experiences I've had is the kind of Hasemite annual trip to Yosemite. Um, a group of us, we climbed this thing called Clouds Rest, which is a massive, I think it was like a 15 mile walk up a, up a big hill, but you get to the top and you're, you're in Yosemite, which is just jaw dropping. And it's just such an amazing view. And obviously getting to know people because it's pretty early on during the whole first year experience. Now can look back on it and laugh, but what made it memorable is the weather was just amazing right to the top. And then as soon as we turned down, we had rain for about an hour, two hours on the way down. So we just had a massive rainstorm and mud everywhere, but it was a great experience the way up. So we got lucky on the way up and unlucky on the way down. All right. It's rapid fire time. We are going to ask you a question and you got a response with the first thing that comes to your mind. Ready? Sure. VC or private equity? Private equity. Startup or search funds? Search funds. What's your favorite book? Any Human Heart by William Boyd. Audiobooks or podcasts? Podcasts. US or South Asia? South Asia. All right. So, Zan, we could go on talking about so many different things, but I think we have to call this podcast to a close. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks, Amir. And thanks, Marissa. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to Here at Haas Podcast. If you know a Hasi that has a story to tell, nominate them on our website, haaspodcast.org. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. It really does help out. Until next time, I'm Marissa Malawanik. And I'm Amir Purandere. And this is Here at Haas. <laughs>